Then in chapter 4, in chapter 4, he says this, verse 1. The future of Yahweh's temple mount will be the most important mountain of all. It will be more prominent than other hills. People will stream to it. Now this is important. Remember when we were back in Genesis, we talked about that the pagan gods all have a cosmic mountain that they sit on. A cosmic mountain is this giant universal mountain that the gods sit on. And for Baal, it was the Mount Zaphon. And for Zeus, it was Mount Olympus. And every god has their mountain. And Yahweh, when he creates the world, he creates his own cosmic mountain. So in the Egyptian mythology and in the Baal mythology and the Marduk mythology, you have all this water, and then out of the water comes a mountain. And the mountain begins to rise up, 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 up high into the sky, and that's where the gods are birthed. And then the gods create this world to rule over, and as an afterthought, they're just kind of like, well, I guess we need humans because we need slaves. That's how every creation account goes. So when you get to Genesis, you have this creation account, and in the creation account, you have a watery mass that's formless and empty. The Holy Spirit begins to hover over it, and then he parts the waters, and the land, the cosmic mountain, begins to appear. And the cosmic mountain rises up, but the difference is it doesn't go up, 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 up to the sky where Yahweh is birthed on the mountain and then creates these humans way down there as an afterthought to be a slave. The cosmic mountain raises up and stops. And it's a flat territory. And he puts Adam and Eve into it as a forethought, an intentional thought. And then Yahweh comes down and walks in the garden and dwells with them. And the point that God is making is that my cosmic mountain is level on the ground with you. And I will walk with you on my cosmic mountain, and you'll be part of my cosmic mountain. However, Israel lost that Humans lost the right to be on the cosmic mountain with God because of their sin. So then when he reintroduced himself to Israel as a nation, he did come down on a cosmic mountain of Mount Sinai way, way up high, separated from them because of their sin. But then he turned around and he built the tabernacle, which was on the ground, in their midst. And he's telling them that this is what I intended with the Garden of Eden, and this is what I want to get you back to one day. Me on the ground, level with you, in your midst, dwelling with you. But because of your sin, I had to be up on Mount Sinai when I gave the law, and you couldn't come into my presence. But because I want you to one day be on the cosmic mountain with you, me, I'm going to give you my tabernacle, but you can't get my full presence, you'll just get my pillar of fire. But that's all supposed to be a picture of one day it'll be more than just a tabernacle, it'll be the whole earth, and one day it won't just be my pillar of fire, it'll actually be me on the earth with you. And the prophets are going to pick up on that, and they're going to keep painting that more and more and more. So when they get to Israel and build the temple, they put it up on Mount Moriah, which was nicknamed spiritually Mount Zion. And what God is saying is, you've ruined that with your sin and your rebellion. But here he promises that one day my temple mount, my cosmic mountain, will be the most important. And people will stream to it. Not like Mount Sinai where you had to stay at the bottom of the mountain but like the Garden of Eden where you will come onto it with, for me, with me. Many nations will come. 
saying, Come on, let us go to Yahweh's mountain, to the temple of Jacob's God, so he can teach us his commands and we can live by his laws. For Zion will be the source of his instructions and Yahweh's teachings will proceed from Jerusalem. Now look at that imagery. The first thing he says is that many people will stream to it. And then he says, and the nations will stream to it. It won't just be Israel coming to the mountain of God and being his chosen people. All the nations will come to the mountain of God. Now the word nations here in Hebrew is the Greek word in the Second Testament as the Gentiles. The word Gentile literally is a Greek word that means nations. Why we translate, we don't translate Gentiles, we just keep it Gentiles when we go into the New Testament, and we don't translate it nations, I don't understand. But every time they're talking about the Gentiles, oh, no, God hates the Gentiles. No, we don't want the Gentiles here. Oh, my gosh, Jesus, I can't believe that you're going to go to the Gentiles. What they really mean is the nations. That's what they're saying, the nations, the nations, the nations. And this is why Jesus keeps pointing back to the prophets and says, have you not read the prophets? Did you not read the law? The law made it very clear that God was choosing you so you could be a blessing to all the nations and get them in Israel. And did you not read the prophets? Because this is the first, but it is not the last time that God is going to talk about the nations streaming into Israel and becoming a part of it. And the point that God is making is that Israel was never, ever meant to be an ethnic descendants of Abraham. Israel was always meant to be the nations, but that God was going to work through the ethnic descendants of Abraham to draw the nations to him. He did not choose Abraham's descendants to be his people only. He chose them to be his ambassadors to bring all the nations to him. And that's what the Second Testament picks up with the church. The church is not an afterthought or a plan B or a second thing that God is doing. The church was what God intended all along. Israel was always meant to be that. That's why the law says, go out to the nations, Israel, and bring them in. But it uses different language. For us, it says, go out to the nations and bring them in. For Israel, they were supposed to be a beacon, attracting everybody to them. That was the point of the law. And the prophet said, you're not doing that, and you must do that. And that's why you have all these people like Rahab and Ruth and Tamar, non-Israelites, being brought into the nation of Israel, and they're commended by the narrators more than anybody else ever is for their faith. Okay, so um, when he brings about this... uh, um, when does he bring about this actual change? It seems like in the Old Testament it's all foreshadowing. And he mentions it, but he doesn't actually talk about it being grafted on the vine. Like in the New Testament, I mean, is it actually quantified in the New Testament through Peter? First part of your question is say he doesn't ever change it. And my second part of your question is he does change it. So let me go back. He doesn't ever change it because that was his original intention. The language in Deuteronomy and the language in the law was always about bringing the nations in. And when you read through it, he says, remember that you too were a foreigner. So take care of the foreigner and bring them in and love them. Every time you see a foreigner, they're commended. 
In fact, when you go through a lot of books, it's David who's running away and not trusting God. But it's Ittai the Gittite who is a foreigner who trusts in God more. It's David who's raping Bathsheba and trying to kill Uriah. But Uriah the Hittite, the foreigner, is more righteous than David is. And we see this theme over and over and over again. The problem is not that God never intended that. The problem is that Israel never did it. And as Israel got blessed more and more and more, they became more arrogant and exclusive over time. And so it's not a change. It's that they failed to do it because they couldn't even obey God and follow him themselves, let alone be a watchtower and a beacon to everybody to be attracted to them. I mean, we know this, like, the, 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 the number one reason that people walk away from Christianity is the hypocrites. There's not as many hypocrites as the world says there is, but that's the thing I point to. When you talk about, okay, but Israel, now you have failed to be my chosen people and go out to all the nations over and over and over again so much that now I'm intentionally stepping away from you and I'm now going to work through a new people group to be my ambassadors, the church. That happens with Christ. He tells Israel intentionally in Nazareth that just like Elijah was not accepted in his own people, and Elijah went to the widow and the foreigners and began to do miracles for them and bring them in, but yet judged Israel for their sins, he says, so will I do the same thing. And at that point, they were like, oh, geez, you're really great. You're really wise. How amazing you are. The minute he said that, they tried to kill him and throw him off the cliff. So he made it very clear that he was, he was shifting. But he wasn't saying that was my official plan. He was saying, this is going to happen. Then you get to the fig tree. The fig tree was the national symbol of Israel. Now, he does this in multiple places, but this is the most graphic picture that I have right now. When he's walking by, he's like, just happens to notice. He knew he was going to do this, but he makes it sound like he just happened to notice. He's walking by and he sees a fig tree that's producing no fruit. The fig tree is the national symbol of Israel. The fruit is what the Bible, the, the, the God uses the tree of Israel all over the place in the prophets. And bearing fruit is used in the prophets all the time. So you see the fig tree and he says, why is that fig tree not um, producing? So he curses it. And when he curses, he comes back later and he notices the tree is dead. And it's at that point that Jesus, then he begins to prophesy the coming of the Romans and completely destroying Israel, which will happen to the temple in 70 AD, and then it will happen to the nation in 135 AD. And it's at that point that God, Jesus, in his prophecies of the coming destruction, makes it clear that this tree is now cursed, this tree, and not cursing in a Harry Potter magic kind of a sense, but just judged by God since... And if you don't repent, then the Romans will come and destroy you. And then when that happens, I'm moving to a new people. I'm moving. But then Paul will come along, Romans 9, 10, 11, and make it clear that God's not done with Israel, though. Israel is still his chosen people, but they're in time out. And that's the one the answers that Zechariah is going to ask the question. When they go into time out, which is the exile, they're going to ask the question, when will time out be over with? And God's answer to Zechariah will be, when you turn fully back to God. And that doesn't ever happen. But God promised time out is over with when they fully turn back to God. And that's why Revelation looks forward to a day 
when people are coming back to God. We'll talk about that more as we keep going, but does that kind of help answer your question a little bit? It never was officially changed because it wasn't. It was supposed to be that way to begin with. But where he begins to stop using Israel as his primary people, even though they're still his people, they're just in time out, and he moves to the Gentiles intentionally and specifically as the church, that's in the Gospels. Jesus is doing that. And that's why the disciples come along. And this is why Paul says to the Jew first, because I'm still holding out hope for them, but to the Gentile, and by the end of the book of Acts, he's all the way in Rome. And it's clear that things have changed. Things have changed. So a lot of the stuff we already know, we've heard in the church, and we, we know this idea, but, that's, but it's so much cooler when you see God start to build it through the prophets. And then when you see him build it through the prophets, then when you get to the Gospels, you're like, whoa, this is actually way bigger than anything I thought in the church. And then when you get to Revelation, you're like, whoa, forget about all those arguments about tribulation and all that crap. It, that's so minor compared to what God's really doing in Revelation. I mean, we have gotten so focused on the tribulation, all that kind of stuff. But because we don't read the prophets and we didn't see God build what he was doing, we don't see what God's really doing in Revelation. It is so cool. And it's way cooler and way bigger than anything I can even explain or comprehend. But I just know it's like it, he's blowing the box up like you would not believe. And whatever idea that you think you have, just explode it and think bigger. And then explode that and think bigger. And explode that and think bigger. And, and, and it's, it's just phenomenal what he's going to be doing here. Because the ultimate, and to kind of give you a little spoiler, and I've said it already, but the ultimate idea is, the whole point of the entire Bible is to make the whole planet the Garden of Eden. And that's where he's going. And it's, it's, this is why you can say all the nations. Because the Garden of Eden was a garden on the earth with Adam and Eve. But God's intention from the very minute he built that cosmic mountain in the garden and put Adam and Eve there and dwelt with them, his intention was to make it the entire planet with all the people. And Israel is never supposed to be exclusive in inviting people. They're only supposed to be exclusive in their devotion to Yahweh. And they confuse exclusiveness to their devotion to Yahweh, and they excluded all the nations, and they became arrogant and prideful and missed who Yahweh was, and then became inclusive in all of their worship. And God's like, you totally missed the point on everything. <laughs> everything. And he's ultimately getting back to that. Chapter 4, verse 3. He will arborate between many peoples and sell disputes between many distant nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not use weapons against other nations. And they will no longer train for war. Now this is powerful. Because basically he's saying you won't need weapons anymore because there won't be nations anymore. Now I know that sounds very globalization UN. But the difference is it's under Yahweh as God, not like us, trying to create a utopia without God. But notice he also says this, and they will no longer train for war. There is only one way that we would never be arguing with each other or in war ever again. And that's if sin nature has been completely removed. And so what this is saying is sin will not exist anymore. But he's going to build 
and build and build until Christ comes along and answers that question. And now we know in Revelation, this is what he's talking about. So you have to realize that what we're reading right now is not Christ fulfilling this in the Gospels. This is Christ fulfilling this in Revelation. This is the end. This is the ultimate goal. This is what the prophets are talking about. Each will sit under his own grapevine or under his own fig tree without any fear. Yahweh will command armies. Sorry, the Yahweh who commands armies has decreed it. So some of you might say the Yahweh Almighty or the Yahweh of hosts, but all those terms are military terms. Though all the nations follow the respect of gods, we will follow Yahweh our God forever. So then Micah ends right there and says, but though then that has not happened yet, the true faithful Israelite will worship Yahweh only until that day comes. And then when that day comes, Yahweh will be with us. Verse 6, In that day, says Yahweh, I will gather the lame and assemble the outcasts who I, whom I injured. I will transform the lame into the nucleus of the new nation and those far off into a mighty nation. And Yahweh will reign over them on Mount Zion from the day forward and forevermore. Now this is beautiful because these are the crippled, the poor, the outcasts. These are the people that like, oh, no way. These are the Jews and the Gentiles who God will never, ever want them because if they're so physically lame and crippled and diseased and leprous, God hates them so much, that's why they're suffering. Remember Jesus. Who is sin, this blind man or his parents? Because obviously God hates them and he's punishing them. And there's no room for a lame person or a leper or a blind person in the kingdom of God, right? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. He was blind so I can demonstrate my glory and power and include him in the kingdom of God. So you will get how much God truly loves people. And that's what God is saying. He's painting a picture, not just the nations, but even the lame, the people you think the gods hate and have abandoned. And this is why Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet that all the wealthy and prominent righteous people, righteous, reject the invitation, but then God sends out for the, the lame and the lepers and the poor. And this is why he goes to them. The prophets are giving you the template for Jesus' ministry. See, what Jesus is doing is not new. What Jesus is doing is what God has already revealed in his character a long time ago. And that's what you, this is why Jesus says, if you really knew the Father, you would know me. But you kill the prophets, and that's why you don't know me. Because that's the point he's making. The prophets laid out the template. They told you what God's dream is. God is telling you what his dream for his future house, his dream house will be, his dream family will be. And Jesus comes along and starts doing it, and the Pharisees are like, what the heck are you doing? This is wrong. And Jesus is like, if you knew the prophets instead of killing them, you would have known God instead of killing his people, and you wouldn't know exactly what I'm doing. And I would say the same thing to Christians. And thank God that you're here. And I know the prophets are dense and hard to read, but we need to be in the prophets more often because they are really the key to unlocking the whole plan of God that was completely missed. It's kind of like if you miss those hints in Deuteronomy, the prophets kind of lay it out. As for you, watchtower, for the flock, fortress of the daughter of Zion, watchtower is often the nickname given to the prophets. Your former dominion will be restored and the sovereignty that belongs to the daughter of Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, why are you now shouting so loudly? Has your king disappeared? Has your wise leader been destroyed? Is this why pain grips you as if you were a woman in labor? Twist and strain, daughter Zion, as you were in labor. For you will leave the city, and you will live in an open field, and you will go to Babylon, but there you will be rescued. There Yahweh will deliver you from the power of your enemies. So this dream is not yet, because right now you're sinning, and you're going to go into exile. And you're going to be like a woman in pain, twisted and painful and misery because of your judgment. But, like child labor eventually produces a child, so your judgment will eventually deliver the hope of God. Both metaphorically and what we'll find out literally through the birth of Jesus Christ. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say Jerusalem must be desecrated so we can gloat over Zion. But they do not know what Yahweh is planning. They do not understand his strategy. He has gathered them like stalks of grain to be threshed as a threshing floor. Get up and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you iron horns. I will give you bronze hooves, and you will crush many nations. You will devote to Yahweh the spoils that you've taken from them, and you will dedicate their wealth to the sovereign ruler of the whole earth. So the nations can't wait to destroy you and attack you and gloat over you and say, you're another notch in our belt and we have destroyed you and look how awesome we are, Israel is no more. But that's because they're nearsighted and they're ignorant and they don't know God's plans and they don't realize that they're a tool in God's hands to judge you and refine you and purify you because one day you will be the powerful nation. And God will give you horns, judgment and authority. And he will give you bronze feet, which is all the better to stomp on you with. Judgment. And you will trample the nations and you will bring justice to the world. And you will then take all the spoils of that and you will give it to Yahweh as devotion. This will be you being used by God to remove evil in the world will be your act of worship. Expanding the garden. Expanding the garden. This is what Adam and Eve was supposed to do. When that serpent came into the garden, they were supposed to call it to repentance. And if the serpent repented, it would be redeemed and the garden would be restored because that's what God does. And if the serpent didn't repent, they were to stomp on it with his iron bronze feet so that the serpent couldn't corrupt the garden. But they sided with the serpent and they became one with the serpent metaphorically. And that's what Israel's been doing since then. There are treaties, there are gods, there are morality. But God is promising a day, a day will come when you will no longer join the serpent in treaties. You will stomp on the serpent and that will be your act of devotion to God. You will bring an end to it. Now remember, I'm not talking about Satan right now. I'm talking about the forces of evil and chaos and temptation.